And now, The Travel Show with Arthur and Pauline Fromer. Your chance to talk to the publishers of the nation's best-selling travel guide series. Whether your travel destination is around your corner or any corner of the world, the Fromers will help you get the most out of your travel experience and save you money at the same time. And now, Arthur and Pauline Fromer. And this is The Travel Show in which we talk about vacations. Welcome I'm Arthur Frommer. And I'm Pauline Frommer. And in the time ahead, we're going to be discussing travel. And that's a conversation you can get in on. If you're in the travel industry, if you have a travel question, we often have people who listen to this show on air with us. To contact me, email FromerTravelShow at Yahoo.com. But let me remind everybody, we're not just on radio. The Fromer guidebooks have been uh, guiding travelers for 60-plus years. They're everywhere that books are sold. And we have a great resource in Fromers.com. That's F-R-O-M-M-E-R-S.com. That's our website. We invite you to visit us there for all of the latest trends in travel, a lot of great destination information. There's just really good resources at Fromers.com for planning your next trip. Finally, do follow us on social media. You'll find the word Fromers on Facebook, in Pinterest, Instagram, and Twitter. And Pauline, have you you have now been traveling, am I, have, I correct? I have. Where have you been to? I had a ridiculously short visit to New Orleans. Uh, it's such a great city. Every time I go, I wish I had time to linger. I, I was invited by the youth hostel, who actually not youth, the uh, international what is it called? Hostel uh, host- Hostiling International. Ho- yes. Hostiling International, the American branch, invited me to speak at their conference. Um, I learned a lot about hostiling. It was fascinating. One of the sad um, new things is hostel, the people who run hostels really see them as mini United Nations. They want them to be places where people meet people from all over the world and form international friendships, as well as cheap places to sleep. Uh, And unfortunately, at a lot of hostels nowadays, instead of talking to one another, people are just sitting there on their devices. And um, so that was a lot of the conversation, how to try to encourage people to meet one another. But when I wasn't hanging out with the hosteling people, I got to see a little of New Orleans, which is always such a great thing to to do. Um, It's always, a. I find that, and this is going to sound weird, but the taxi drivers in New Orleans are the best speakers, are the most interesting conversationalists (laughs) of taxi drivers anywhere. I I took a taxi in from the airport and my, my lovely driver, her name was Betty, uh, she told me all about her life. And then when she heard I was going to Le Pavillon, the hotel, she kind of got a little strange. And she said, I, I don't know, how long are you there for? I don't know if I should say this. And I, I said, what, what, what do you want to tell me? Apparently, the hotel is haunted, (laughs) according to her. She was a little nervous for me, but I didn't have any paranormal activities. (laughs) But, Pauline, did she also have a restaurant recommendation for you? That's really what many of us are looking for when we go to New Orleans. Where shall we eat? 
Well, I I didn't ask her for a restaurant restaurant recommendation because a good friend of mine from my my twenties, back when I was a singer, she and I did an opera together actually, and she now lives in New Orleans. She runs a darling wine store called Wino, which stands for Wine Institute of New Orleans, but it's Wino. Uh, and so she took me to an incredible restaurant called Cochon. Actually, we have it in the Frommer Guide. C-O-C-H-O-N, which, which means a pig, isn't exactly, that so? Exactly. Yes. And that's what I had. I had the Cochon, <laughs> which was this incredibly tender meat with uh, crackling and choo-choo, and it, it was just delicious. But my appetizer is what you would have loved. Oh. It was a roasted chicken liver. Uh, <laughs> I would have loved that. Well, as I always a, remember as a child, I loved chicken livers. But that's because it was a big treat. There was your mother would only get one, one chicken, chicken and liver, there would be course, one liver in, in it. The town where we lived, of course. Yeah, and so to get the liver was a was an incredible reason to celebrate. Well, well, Ian, I had about re- six. Return again to the taxi driver, the female taxi yeah. driver who felt that the hotel you were going to is haunted. How did you <laughs> How did you respond to that? Well, did you nevertheless go along? With it, uh, well, I, well, I, you didn't you know, change we, at that point. Oh, I couldn't change. That's where they put me up for the conference. But it's a, it's a it's actually a very beautiful place, filled with chandeliers. Actually, it seemed like an odd place for a hostel conference, but that's what it was. And at te- starting from 10 p.m. until midnight, maybe this is to drive the ghosts away. In this historic hotel, they have this tradition where they set out peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. For all of the guests. Oh, is that I, lovely? Yeah, is which was lovely? nice. I guess I think the idea is you've had your dinner, you need a little snack right. before you go out and listen to music and whoop uh, it up. Because uh, uh, most people who go to New Orleans, you know, spend a, a good amount of time doing nightlife, as you should. Um, so I went to that fabulous restaurant. The next day I went to another fabulous restaurant called Willa Jean's that had the best chocolate chip cookies and fried chicken I've had in I don't know how long. So delicious. And then I went back to a place that I've been before, but that has expanded so greatly, I thought I should see it again. And that was the World War II Museum which is probably one of the greatest uh, history museums in the United States and and on the planet, really. Um, And you think, does World War II need this massive complex of museums, uh, of buildings, which is what it has now? But you you start the visit in what they call a four-dimensional experience. What that means is it's a 48-minute-long movie narrated by Tom Hanks, uh, during which snow falls and your seat shakes, and at, at certain points, actual artifacts kind of join with the image on the screen, so it looks like a, the nose of a plane comes out at you. And this all sounds hokey, but it's not done to glorify the war. That's that's the brilliant part of this museum. They, they really make you understand what a deep and terrible tragedy this war was. 65 million people died in, died it, in World course. War II, which was the greatest carnage in human history. 
and I went to two of the newest exhibits. One was called The Road to Berlin. The other was The Road to Tokyo. And it was all about the campaigns that basically one by one allowed the United States and its allies, Britain uh, and uh, USSR and others, to finally end the war. Pauline, is the is the uh, World War II Museum still staffed by veterans of World War II? It's not staffed by them, but there is always a veteran sitting at a table near the admissions desk to answer questions. So I met a lovely man in his mid-90s Totally there. Isn't that wonderful? Amazing. And, and, and he is and he, living at that hotel. He is working at that he, well, hotel. He, I, no, at the museum. Uh, he's not, he's, the, not I don't know hotel. how often he's there. I think they have different veterans each day. But he and his three brothers all fought in World War II, all in different places. He was up in the Italian Alps, And they are all in their 90s today. Well, I don't know if they're still around. Luckily, they all survived the war, which was pretty miraculous when you look at the number of casualties that there were for that war. But the the brilliant thing about the museum is when when they introduce the the, the, uh, 4D spectacle that I told you about, they, they announced that 500 historians went into the making of this spectacle and they present the history in such a compelling, varied way. In every room, when they're talking about um, a special battle or an important battle that took place in the winter, there's fake snow covering things and you're watching videos and there are interactive panels and there it looks like you're in a, a, a snow-covered field. Um, and they talk about in, in very interesting ways the different items that shifted the war this way and that. Uh, the, the creation of a new type of bomber that allowed the Americans to uh, they kept being caught by the Japanese because they were in these really big, slow-moving bombers. And when they introduced a new type of airplane, that finally allowed them to gain supremacy over the Japanese because they could shoot their planes before their planes shot down our planes. Um, and they, they I don't want to say they give excuses for Nagasaki and Hiroshima, but they really lay the groundwork for why Americans felt they had to go that far. And we had to drop the, the atomic had bomb to, because we so feared that, uh, that the hundreds Japanese, of thousands of our men would be killed in hundred an thousands would be Japan. killed. And if you look at Okinawa, where thousands of Japanese Were committed suicide because they thought that, 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 that that's what they had to do, that they were going to fight to the death or kill themselves, um, it's, it's such a hard... Uh, a bit of history to talk about, and but that, I think that, it's done in a very sensitive that way. That statistic that you name, namely that 65, 65 million, million people died in World War II, yeah. that's an amazing thing to contemplate. It really is. Of, of all sorts, both civilians and soldiers uh, from every nation on the planet, it was uh, the greatest catastrophe perhaps in human history. Uh, but we're through it, and that also seems like a miracle once you go through this brilliant museum. We have to take a break. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to The Travel Show. Up next, a bit of adventure. On the line, we have Julie Kessler. She's a freelance writer. She recently wrote a piece for the San Francisco Examiner called The Unexpected Pleasures of Uganda. Seeing mountain gorillas thriving is an unforgettable experience. Welcome back to The Travel Show, Julie. Thanks very much, Pauline. So before I get to the ooh and ah of this topic, I have to ask you about safety, because not long ago in Uganda, tourists were uh, uh, kidnapped. Uh, Did that affect your trip at all? It didn't affect the logistics of my trip. However, it certainly gave me cause for pause, as it were, because... Um, It was just about uh, two to three weeks prior to my arrival in Entebbe that um, another California resident, uh, Kimberly Endicott, was kidnapped with her driver uh, just near uh, Queen Elizabeth National Park, which is just um, a few kilometers away from the entry airport of Kihihi. Um, It's alongside the border with the Democratic Republic of Congo, and that was uh, obviously very disconcerting. Sure. She was... um, She was released. ...with her driver, uh, but she was released several days later unharmed under somewhat unusual circumstances. But did you feel safe? Did it seem like they were taking extra security precautions? They were taking extra security precautions while we... Uh, were on um, the trek towards uh, towards the mountain gorillas. I will say that at no time during any uh, day that I was in Uganda did I feel unsafe. Okay, well that's good, and it certainly was an adventure. Let's get right to the gorillas. You had to do what sounded like a physically exhausting trek to finally see them. Is this something that most people could can accomplish? I think that it can be accomplished by most people who are in good physical condition. It is not a trip for anyone uh, with physical disabilities. Um, I myself am in very good condition. I do lots of physical activities. Um, Having said that, it was strenuous in that the the ascending was really quite steep, Um, and it took about two hours, and it was extremely steep. Uh, I will put it to you that way. We were very, um, very winded. It's also, there's a lot of vines and there are a lot of um, narrow, very narrow, steep, muddy, uh, misty pathways that we have to ascend. Were there actual paths or were you just cutting through the jungle? Pretty much cutting through the jungle. Um, In front of our guide were two trackers that carried these panga, which are kind of... um, arc-shaped machetes, if you will, and they really had to hack through the ferns and the vines in order to sort of make a path as they heard where the mountain gorillas were, you know, further, uh, uh, you know, further above us. Right. And so you, you, you trekked for two hours through the dense jungle and then suddenly you stop. And what happened then? So we had heard some snapping noises, which sort of sounded just like twigs uh, cracking or being bent to cracking, and we were, you know, told to stop. And after a few more uh, bits of hacking away at, at the vines, we came across um, our first group of 
mountain gorillas. And I will tell you that having seen a lot of amazing things throughout my years and years of foreign travel, this was by far one of the most breathtaking. Why? To see these majestic animals so closely, we were with basically within 12 to 15 feet, and how these habituated mountain gorillas were calm and relaxed and going about their daily business of, you know, eating and uh, just hanging out. And right. It was a remarkable experience we, to see them in their natural environment. You say in your piece that seeing them in person uh, proved to you that, that we share 98% of our genes with these creatures because they seemed in some ways so human. Indeed. Even looking into the face of one of the largest ones that we saw, which was a, a silverback, the, the, the look in, in his eyes, and he, he really sort of conveyed a level of comprehension and understanding, if you will, that we were there to watch him, to look at him. We were not going to be harming him. He was calm, uh, which was a good thing, considering he was nearly <laughs> 400 pounds and wow. six feet tall with this massive barrel chest. It looked like two quarterbacks from the L.A. Rams put together. Oh, my goodness. Um, but seeing their faces and seeing the way they behave with their young it really did uh, impress upon me the shared DNA. Well, let me ask you, so did how many days did you do these hikes to watch the gorillas? Was it, was it just a one-day thing? It's just a one-day. Um, it is a very expensive permit to obtain. Um, it's $600 U.S. a person. Wow. Um, it's also very strenuous, and you sort of do need a day or two to recover afterwards uh, before onward travel uh, for most people. Um, but what else was, did you do in Uganda? Why else would somebody go there? Oh, there's so much to go there. Uh, you know, Winston Churchill once called uh, this part of East Africa the Pearl of Africa uh, because there are so many things to see. Uh, there are the world's largest number of recorded bird species, um, hundreds of butterfly types, uh, big five game parks, a hundred different mammals, um, of, of which are included the mountain gorillas of the Windy Impenetrable National Park. Hmm. So for nature lovers, for birders, uh, also for cultural seekers, um, I was able to have the incredible opportunity of uh, visiting uh, Batwa Pygmy Village, hmm. which was so impressive and interesting and definitely left a mark upon me as a, as a traveler. Well, was that, uh, uh, I hate to ask, but so many of these village visits can often be just for tourists. Did you feel like you were getting a real sense of that community? Absolutely. This particular village was um, not a tourist village like one would imagine. This was where they lived. We, They were there with their you know, husbands and wives and, and uh, you know, multi-generational uh, families uh, with, with children. This was them going about their business. We were very uh, fortunate because uh, one of our friends of our guide uh, had uh, was fluent uh, in their dialect, mm. and so we actually were able to sit with them oh, for about an hour and a half. How great. That's talk. great. We, we've been speaking with Julie Kessler. She has a terrific article in the San Francisco Examiner called The Unexpected Pleasures of Uganda. Thank you so much, Julie. Thank you, Pauline.
Welcome back to The Travel Show. I'm Pauline Fromer, here with my dad, Arthur Fromer, and in front of me is a gorgeous new book. It's bright red with gold. It's called Atlas Obscura, the second edition. And to talk about it, on the line, we have Dylan Thuris, who is one of the founders of Atlas Obscura. Obscura. Welcome back, Dylan. Thanks for having me back, Pauline. It's good to be here. So it's a gorgeous book, as the first one was as well, but bigger, right? Tell us what's different between this edition and the first edition. Yeah, when we when we published the first edition, you know, we knew that we would at some point want to go back and update it and add in the new incredible hidden wonders uh, that we had found uh, since since publishing the first book, and so. With this, with this second edition, we've done just that. We've added uh, over 100 uh, new places all, all over the world uh, that are just sort of these, these spectacular, incredible locations. Some of my favorite places uh, are in this new edition. Uh, and then we also got to play around with some other fun formats. So uh, we got to make this kind of, there's a three-page fold-out map uh, that is, the Atlas Obscura sort of dream trip around the world to all of our favorite locations. And it's done on a a kind of unusual map style called the Dymaxion map, which is a a personal favorite of mine. So, Mm. um, I think uh, it might end up on the walls of, of some college dorm rooms. That's my guess. I hope that's weird. (laughs) I hope that's true. Yeah. Uh, Just, you know, I feel like we should take one step back for any of our listeners tuning in who've never heard of Atlas Obscura. I know that's probably a small number of people, but just give our listeners just in a nutshell what Atlas Obscura is, and then we'll talk about, again, what's new. Yeah, so we uh, consider ourselves to be the guide to the world's hidden wonders. And we started back in 2009 as a, as a website and as a, a place where we gathered all of these incredible but often very little known places from around the world. And uh, people could use this collection of now 18,000 places to, to travel and explore the world. And since then, you know, we decided we, we wanted to kind of distill that down into its very best, the, the absolute most incredible places we've, we've found. So that is what the books represent, the kind of distillation of all of this work, of exploring unusual places, whether they're the, the living root bridges uh, in Cherrapunji, India, you know, grown from the roots of, of two trees, mm. or the gates of hell, a, a giant uh, burning hole in the Turkmenistan desert that was uh, basically the result of an industrial accident uh, set on fire in the 70s and has, has been burning ever since. Um, so these are a few of the kinds of places that Atlas Obscura uh, is, is interested in, um, but uh, they range all over the world and, and in scale and style as well. So let's talk about a couple that are closer to home to begin with. And then in our second segment with you, we will get back, we will get to some of the more exotic ones. In the United States, if you had to go to just one Atlas Obscura location, where would you go? I, uh, I know that's like asking you which is your favorite child. I apologize for that. That is a really tough question. Um, you know, I have some places that I... Uh, you can give us your place- top three. Okay, all right. Maybe I'll, I'll give you a few. Um, you know, there's one that I love because I saw it when I was a kid. It's in Wisconsin, in Springland, Wisconsin. It's called The House on the Rock. It's an incredible collection of strange and unusual objects. It has the world's largest indoor carousel. It has a giant 
sculpture of a squid fighting a whale the size of the Statue of Liberty, wow. a room that looks like it goes on for infinity. It's just, it is this kind of bizarre, uh, seemingly never-ending uh, quasi-art installation. Uh, Who's behind it? it? What, why is it there? <laughs> so the story, it has a great mythology to it. The backstory is that a guy named Alex Jordan Jr., uh, an architect, wanted to work for Frank Lloyd Wright, who was building uh, Taliesin, uh, right there right. in this. And Frank area. Lloyd Wright is known for his love of giant squid. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so Alex Jordan, according to the mythology at least, uh, approached Frank Lloyd Wright, showed him his plans, and Frank Lloyd Wright told him, I wouldn't hire you to build a cheese crate or a chicken coop. Oh. And, and oh. so, you know, spurned and, and disappointed, Alex Jordan Jr. decides, you know what, forget that. I'm going to build my own masterpiece. And he goes on to build what I sometimes refer to as a a kind of a Frank Lloyd wrong. Uh, <laughs> he feels in a sort of that kind of architectural style. But then the thing that happens next is almost the most interesting part, which is that he just starts adding more and more things onto this strange house. And it becomes this sprawling place that takes six hours to walk through. Really? Wow. And, and a lot of this stuff is, some of it is acquired. Uh, some of it is built basically by him and his kind of strange artist friends working together out in Wisconsin. They were almost a proto Installation Arts Collective before huh. that was a thing that it, people were really uh, paying attention to. It's not quite how they thought of, of themselves, but that is really the, the end result. It's just there's not much like it in the world. And I visited when I was 12 with my parents, and it kind of permanently warped my mind. So that's always <laughs> Well, it set you on your path. Now you're yeah. one of the founders <laughs> of Atlas Obscura, thanks to this place in Wisconsin. What's its name again? It's called The House on the Rock. House on the Rock. I want to go. We are speaking with Dylan Thuris, who is one of the founders of Atlas Obscura, both the website and the wonderful new second edition, which is a beautiful coffee table book with lots of great photos and text about fascinating places around the world. So we have the House on the Rock in Wisconsin in about 40 seconds, a quick one, uh, either the East or the West Coast. What would you recommend? I'll do one on the on the East Coast uh, ish, uh, sort of actually Midwestern also. But uh, I was just in St. Louis, and I got to go to a place that I hadn't had a chance to visit, but had been meaning to for years, called the City Museum. The ten-story converted shoe factory that has been uh, made into one of the greatest kids arts and exploration places. It has a 10-story slide that the kids can go down. It's got little tunnels that only kids can fit through, so everyone immediately loses their children in this giant, <laughs> wonderful, magical space. If you're ever oh. in St. Louis, there's just nothing like the city. I museum. have been. It's amazing. We have to take our first break, but we'll be back with more with Dylan Ferris discussing Atlas Obscura. Welcome back. You're listening to The Travel Show, and who better to discuss travel than Dylan Thuris? He is one of the founders of Atlas Obscura, and they now have a wonderful second edition of their New York Times bestseller out. It's called Atlas Obscura, the second edition, an explorer's guide to the world's modern hidden wonders. So, Dylan, if somebody were going to go outside the United States... And they wanted to see 
a lot of hidden wonders. <laughs> what country do they go to? Well, I think my favorite for sort of sheer volume, uh, it's just hard to compete with Italy. Hmm. Italy, just in terms of kind of both the variety uh, and the exceptional nature of some of the things there that... In fact, most Italians just kind of ignore because there's there's so much <laughs> of this kind of stuff. They're just background. Do any of the hidden wonders have to do with pasta? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, there there are there is a there is actually a very uh, rare kind of pasta mm. uh, called the uh, hair of the gods, um, and it is uh, only made in one little town, mm. and it's basically a secret. Uh, sorry, the thread of the gods. The thread uh, of the gods. Yeah, yeah, the secret recipe. Mm. So you've got to go on this sort of 20-mile pilgrimage uh, to Sardinia to taste this, like, ultra, think angel hair, but 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 vastly thinner, and it's still made by hand. Wow. Uh, so that's actually a, a place that uh, is a pasta, pasta-oriented wonder. That's very cool. And I got to ask, I, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot, are any of the hidden wonders in the Vatican? Oh, sure. Well, there's a couple of different things that you can see in the Vatican. One of my uh, favorite uh, wonders of the Vatican is basically the Pope's escape route. So mm-hmm. it's this little uh, raised uh, walkway, basically, uh, out, of the, out of the Vatican, where should the Passetto de Borgio, I'm murdering that Italian, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was a chance for, for if things went really wrong, uh, popes could, could run away on this little passage. And, in fact, they did. Uh, on at least two occasions, uh, popes used it to escape from the city. Uh, and so this is kind of this great piece of history mm. uh, connected to the Vatican and just a, a, fun, a fun place to, to explore. Fascinating, though I, I I messed up in that question because the Vatican is not officially part of Italy. It's its, its own little <laughs> <You're> country, <right. laughs> which That's most true. people don't realize. Um, so we are speaking with Dylan Thuris, one of the founders of Atlas Obscura. They have a great new book out, uh, Great for Gifts. It's called Atlas Obscura, the second edition, an explorer's guide to the world's hidden wonders. What are some of your favorites in other countries that were just added for the second edition? So there's a, a wonder that I, I would... It's not the easiest thing to go see. Um, in fact, it may be all but impossible, but it's something that just boggles my mind. Uh, it's called the Milky Seas, and it is off the uh, coast of the Horn of Africa. And the story behind this is basically some researchers... Uh, marine biologists were talking to each other and discussing bioluminescence. And they were talking about this phenomenon known as the Milky Seas, where sailors would say that they had sailed across miles and miles of a glowing ocean. Hmm. And these had always been kind of dismissed. And while they were kind of discussing this, one of them said, you know, I wonder if that was true. Could, could you see that from a satellite image? If it were really that big, it would, it would show up. And they did some research. They found a report from a ship called the SS Lima, uh, from the 90s that described this experience, and they had GPS coordinates, and they were able to find satellite imagery that was over this period during this time when the ship was there. And when they looked at these images and they turned the contrast way up, 
they discovered a bioluminescent area the size of Connecticut. Wow. The largest example of bioluminescence anywhere in the world. And it actually changed the way that uh, these scientists uh, thought about uh, bioluminescence and what was sort of possible. The scale of it had previously been just dismissed as not even a thing that could happen. Right. Um, so this is one of these things where it would be very difficult. You'd have to get a boat. You'd have to, like, spend, you <laughs> But know. does it still exist? Because I know some bioluminescent bays are fading in their brightness now, thanks to um, uh, light pollution and other issues. They believe that the, there have been other sightings hmm. uh, made via satellite. So that it does manifest, but it manifests in slightly different places because it's sort of, it's off the coast, of, it's, it's in this area off the Horn of Africa, but it's sort of, it's a natural phenomenon. So you're not quite sure where or when it's going to appear. So it's, it's this kind of, um, you know, ghostly uh, thing that if you're in the right place in the right time, wow. you, might, you might see. Well, f- absolutely fascinating, as is the entire book, the website. We have been speaking with Dylan Thuris of Atlas Obscura, which is the second edition is now out. It's subtitled An Explorer's Guide to the World's Hidden Wonders. Best of luck with this, Dylan. How many? How long did it take to do this one? <laughs> well, because, because we didn't have to. So the first book took about five years. Wow. This one is out uh, only three years after we released the first edition because mostly we were just uh, adding and expanding right. and, and, and making well, some more fun parts. It's so. a great book. Thank you so much for appearing on The Travel Show. My pleasure. Anytime. listening to The Travel Show, we started out talking about my recent trip to New Orleans. Um, It was a little before you're going to be hearing this broadcast, and it happened to be I flew back on the night that the New Orleans airport closed. Their international airport that's been in business or been in use for decades is being replaced by another building all the way down the runway. And in New Orleans, that means there was a funeral. Uh, I was in security, and suddenly I hear a brass band playing, and I see a massive uh, puppet of Louis Armstrong jigging along and with a brass band behind him and behind that a, a huge parade of people uh, waving handkerchiefs in the air and dancing and they threw a funeral <laughs> for the old airport building it was so it was such a great send off it was such a wonderful way in fact i was on the last plane to use the old airport building uh, now when I, I talked earlier in the episode about the fact that taxi drivers are incredible storytellers, the two I used to get to the airport and, and then back to the airport, to, to town from the airport, I should say, they both told me how they're dreading the new airport opening. Oh. Because apparently the city of New Orleans spent millions to create this new building, but they didn't create a road. 
leading to it, a road that's as wide as the current road. Uh, according to the taxi drivers, it's a small road that goes through a residential community uh, off the highway to get to the entrance, and they think it's going to be chaos. They think it's going to be a disaster. In fact, the people at the conference I was I was at, who are all in the travel industry, so have their finger on the pulse for this type of thing, they were all planning to, to leave for the airport four hours in advance. Because everybody in town thinks that this new airport will be gorgeous, but a disaster. <laughs> because they they spent millions, but didn't manage to think of a new road. Of an access time. road. So they're going to be apparently expanding the new new road. I'm speaking out of school because I haven't heard whether this is actually going to be a problem or not. I'm crossing my fingers that it won't be. But if you're going to New Orleans in the coming months know that you may have to spend a little more time getting into and out of well, the Pauline, city. Well, someone will do something about that. But isn't it amazing that there, you actually saw a funeral procession yeah. in honor of the new <laughs> of the old airport? Yeah, yeah. And it was funny because I also got uh, food at the airport for dinner. <laughs> that's the timing of it. And uh, they were running out of everything. I guess they hadn't <laughs> restocked in a week. And so I kept saying, I'll have this. Nope, we don't have it. I'll have that. Nope, sorry, we don't have it. I finally got Got, I got some red beans and rice and a Sazerac, and that was a nice goodbye to uh, to New Orleans. I hope I get to go back soon. It really is one of my favorite cities. We have to say goodbye for this hour, but we thank you for listening. And, and we those- wish you a hearty bon voyage. 